Yeah, we're continuing our teaching. I even got some recap so we can overlap a little bit from last time. But these are called turning point uh, sessions or meetings because we're going through a series of teachings to explain our foundations, what we do and why we do it for some folks who have joined us who are new or others who are simply interested. uh, That's great, too. Um, But we feel like once these things get laid down again and we get the rest of us get recalibrated, that the Lord's going to use this as a turning point, kind of a pivot to move forward into a new season. So that's why we named the the uh, the meetings that. But the main thing is to really focus on the foundations, the scriptural, theological and spiritual underpinnings of the kingdom that feed into what we do. And so then we'll also be talking about the practical aspects as well. So we're going to continue talking about the new creation, which we talked about last time. And I'll lead into it so it makes sense from last time. Uh, The new creation we talked about in, in the last meeting has to do with becoming by identity and by the power of God, his sons and daughters. And therefore, we have the capacity to live victoriously over sin. And that's the passage we looked at last time. But when Paul laid that out in Romans 6, he was, uh, he was leading somewhere. And so we're going to follow that logic today. The new creation means a new family. So to be, to be a new kind of human does not mean we're just a new individual. It means we've joined a whole new nation, a new covenant of people, a whole new kind of family. We can't be human and not be connected with family according to God's image, according to his design. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and then on into the new covenant. So Paul and the other apostles and certainly Jesus before them, that's where they were going with this. That was the meaning and the purpose of the new creation. Not merely so individuals could live victoriously over sin, but so that new creation could then serve the new community. And we'll see where Paul gets that from, where I'm getting that from in Paul in a few moments. So, yeah, that's where we're going. That's why the Turning Point Teaching 2, on your notes there, the title is A New Creation Means New Family. That's what new creation means to God. That there's a new family, that there's a new humanity as family. It's the entire meaning of Ephesians and what Paul calls the mystery of the gospel. It's the purpose of Romans as well, which we'll look at today. And it is the reflection of God's image. For God himself is community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And his people must reflect that in order to enjoy that about him and about one another. And of course, therefore, to image him in creation and before the powers of the air. So that's what we're after. We don't have merely a method or a model. We are trying to conform ourselves by the Spirit to the image of God and the purpose of God. So, little intro there. Uh, thumbs up for that. I would like to open up now in prayer. And when I do, I just want to slip in a prayer request that didn't really occur to me, Mike, until we were halfway through praying already and I don't want to interrupt. But there's just a friend uh, who's a pastor in Florida. He's, uh, I, I do know him, though we haven't spoken in many years. I actually spoke at his church many years ago. But I know his daughter and son-in-law 
uh, more recently and immediately. And he just uh, yesterday uh, was rushed to the hospital with heart failure and she said illness. Uh, she didn't even specify, but, the, you know, they don't have a good report for him. And he's got trouble breathing and the whole bit. So he's in the hospital. His name is Kent Rogers. We can pray for Pastor Kent together, if you don't mind, as part of our opening prayer for this part. Uh, I just want to intercede together in agreement, especially in light of Mike's encouraging word for our brother. And also, I think it'll be really encouraging to them that we pray. But more importantly, it's effective to move the mountain out of the way. And to give liberty to our brother whose time I don't believe has come. So we want to pray healing and resurrection life in him in Jesus' name. So Abba Father, we love you with all of our hearts. You are our Father and you are God and there is no other. And we thank you for your faithfulness and that you have put in at our disposal your great power in your Son, Jesus, and in the Holy Spirit in our midst. We are grateful that you have given us this favor and this great gift of salvation in your kingdom in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't take these things lightly, but this is a holy truth and a wonderful moment and expression of your grace. Oh, how gracious you are, great God. How merciful and kind and generous to treat us in this way and to honor us. We give you thanks. And so we bring before you our brother Kent. We ask on his behalf that you will intervene. We ask that your dominion will come like the lightnings of God to destroy every enemy and sickness and illness and hindrance to perfect health. Liberate him. We speak over Kent life and light in Jesus' name. You will live and not die. You will prosper and not be hindered in Jesus' name. Better than before. Lord, infuse him with grace and strength. And may it be shouted as a testimony. May many thanksgivings be given to God because of this testimony. Praise God. Jesus is King and Lord. Alive from the dead. It's in His name we pray. I'm asking you, Father God, for the the precious ones that are gathered here today, for those who could not be with us today that are in in one of the churches, we ask you for, uh, on behalf of the saints of this city, that you will pour out the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that we would know what is the hope of our calling and what are the what is the glory of the what is it the um and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and that's the key prayer for today so i should have gotten that right lord open our eyes to see the glory of the wealth of your inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of your power toward us who believe These are in accordance with the working of the strength of your might, which you brought about in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
And He put all things, Lord, You put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Praise God. Jesus is King, Lord. Make us, help us to be a people worthy to be Your body by Your grace, Lord, that we might embody this great dominion and majesty that You have through crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. Lord, give us grace even today for that. Put it into teaching, into expressions through which the Spirit can speak to our hearts and change us, conform us from glory to glory. May this teaching be nothing less than an unveiling of Jesus in the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Because He's worthy to have such a people. In His name we pray. Amen. 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 Praise God. So, a little recap if you're following in the notes there. The summary of our work is as uh, as follows. Our vision is very simple. It's family on mission. So I want to draw this here that I didn't draw last time, or or I did and I forgot. Um, we, we seek first God's kingdom in response to Jesus' instruction to do so. And when that kingdom comes down on the earth, I make this triangular formation here. These are arrows coming, even though it's a triangle. Because the kingdom coming down in motion like this, when it comes down, it creates family on mission. And so this is our vision is to embody the kingdom as family on mission. Because when the kingdom comes down to earth, which is something we should be praying every day, when that happens, it creates family, spiritual family, on mission. That's what the kingdom looks like. So practically, if we are cultivating family in the Spirit under Jesus' dominion, and making disciples who make disciples, we are embodying the kingdom and pursuing it. If we're not doing these things practically and consistently, then we're not pursuing the kingdom. That's the other way. So you go up with it, right? So this is our vision, to pursue this kingdom manifested on the earth and answer, uh, as God answers these prayers in and through us. Uh, the kingdom on earth looks like family on mission. So if we're not church as family that is actually vitally connected to other spiritual people, uh, Jesus followers with whom we have Ephesians 5.21 subject yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. We have fellowship. We break bread. We have prophecy. We pray for one another. There's actual a, 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 a unit of people in whose fellowship we are immersed. Unless we have that, we're not fully under the dominion of Jesus. See, this is, this is our great, uh, the, the main point it's not just because we fancy hanging out and being casual, and that's why we meet in homes or whatever. It's because this is the way we see the kingdom. So when the kingdom comes down, it looks like family, so that's what we cultivate. So we seek to be vitally connected in love toward one another. And then from that launching pad or base of a church that is that kind of family, we want to make disciples who make disciples. And by the way, the family environment is the environment of disciple-making and it is the goal of disciple-making. It is both. It is both the environment and the goal. 
of disciple making. In fact, when a disciple is first made, he or she is plunged in water into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and then taught to obey commands. So the the first immersion in the water is an immersion into the divine family name. It's It's a connection with family and then the family environment becomes the place to teach Jesus commands. This all occurs, all of it, the development of family and the the proliferation of disciples, all of it happens by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. So I kind of write that across. I should have done it in a different color. Um, But I'm not that guy on TV that does that. The the art, the Afro art. the, the The guy with the Afro and he does the art. And relationships, it happens all through relationships. If you came here for that, you came for the wrong thing. Um, but I still should have done it in a different color. What's that? Is his name Bob? That's incredible. Bob Ross, of course. Oh, boy. All of this happens by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Right, So we are unapologetically Pentecostal, charismatic in the historical sense, most importantly in the biblical sense. We want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, speak in other tongues, share the gifts of the Spirit. Come on, Shandai, all that. Signs, wonders, miracles. And even the, all of this, the influence on our hearts. The, the family covenant is called the, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the family part is through the Holy Spirit. And of course, the missional part is through the Holy Spirit and through relationships. The Holy Spirit and relationships makes both of these happen. Obviously, family requires relationships, but it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't just have our natural inclinations toward family, which we have in a natural family to some degree, sometimes a lot. Sometimes a little, but it's naturally there. But in this family, it has to be by the Spirit. That's exactly what the Scriptures teach us. And of course, it's the same thing to make disciples. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit. But even that happens relationally. So it's good to share the Gospel, you know, on the street, on the go. That's a good thing. But normally the way disciples are made is when we have relationships in the world. And the Holy Spirit flows through those relationships. And even if we are just sharing the gospel with a stranger on the street, which probably most of us have done, still there there has to be that element of relationship where we're not just doing our duty, but we're caring for that person. So there's a relational aspect. So it's through that love, even connections with with people that that are not yet inside the kingdom, we want to be as relational as possible. Because the Spirit works through that also, even on mission. Okay, so anyway, there's a that, that's kind of an encapsulation of our of our vision, which I expressed last time, but I didn't do the artwork, and I knew that that was important to you, especially that triangle thing, because that's kind of makes it more vivid. You know, it comes down at the same time. One kingdom comes down two ways simultaneously of equal importance, family on mission. So our mission, therefore, uh, number two, I, I forget how I put it in your notes, but number two mission is to make disciples, which, as we said, that, that comes from church as family and leads to church as family. 
We can't be the Jesus kind of disciples unless we have family relationships and then we must plant others. That's the way the apostles translated the Great Commission. They made disciples but put them in churches, made churches out of them, I should say. Our motto is we are discovering the powerful way of living in Jesus Christ. Discovering means we're all in process. We've never totally mastered uh, our own discipleship, but we are moving toward maturity. That's the goal. So we're always in process, even as we are maturing. Um, and the way we're discovering the way of powerful living, I isolate the word way because the kingdom of God is a way of life. It's a way of living in the power of the Spirit. It's a way of relating to people. It's a way of preaching. It's a way of solving problems. It's a way of dealing with things when conflicts come up, etc., etc., etc. There's a Jesus way of living. Then there's every other way. So we want to know that way better and better. All right? It's, it's, it's simpler to articulate than it is to live it. So when we talk about knowing the way better, we mean knowing it so well it's a conviction in our spirit and we're living it out. Because right, the Jesus way does not always align with our natural inclinations. So we're learning and discovering that way in our hearts more and more. And therefore embodying his kingdom on earth. Yes, and then the powerful living in Jesus Christ refers to people who are actually conformed and being conformed to God's image. The image of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, which makes us powerful. The more... The more we're like Jesus in love and in wisdom and in character and our relationships in power, the more we're like Jesus, the less and less we're under the influence of the powers of the air. Which means we're utterly free and very powerful. Changing the world like a chain reaction by just touching lives whether we're just raising our families and being salt and light or we're starting orphanages or we're part of a disciple-making movement that's just raw and just proliferating with great power across whatever, Southeast Asia, whatever it is. We're, we're going to be effective and influential in doing exactly what Jesus said would give glory to our Father and that is bearing fruit. So the more we're living like Jesus, the Jesus way, the more powerful we are because we're not under the muting, suppressive power of the powers of the air. Right on. So letter B, uh, as in our recap, we, we are looking at during this series of meetings that which we try to live our whole community life by, and that is these three apostolic traditions that are identified by Paul uh, two of them in 1 Corinthians 11, and then the third that I'm uh, referring to is in 1 Corinthians 15. He mentions another tradition of working hard in 1 Thessalonians. And so there were, there were other little ways that he had taught his church's customs, like um, you know Jews staying Jews and Gentiles staying Gentiles. In, that's in 1 Corinthians 7:17. 7, it's like, look, if you're called like this, if you're called... In this social position, don't try to change that as a believer. Be that under Jesus' dominion. So specifically, if you're a Jew, stay a Jew. Don't get uncircumcised. Be a Jew for Jesus. And if you're a Gentile, you don't need to get circumcised. You don't need to change your ethnic background. Be you. And then he says, and this is what I teach in all the churches. 
He had these customs to make this, uh, this, this culture, this way of life that the church was and is. So I'm identifying three of these teaching customs that are really overarching for creating New Testament churches, for creating apostolic uh, congregations. So, um, yeah, Paul would go into cities and do these three things. He would do the first tradition, which is what we're dipping into again today. I'll get to that. And he would teach the other two traditions. And when he taught them and people were doing them the right way, they were the church. So these traditions are important. So when I say the word tradition, I'm not referring to the man-made traditions that replace the commandments of God that Jesus condemned in Matthew 15 and Mark 7. Those are bad traditions. These are the good traditions that come out of Revelation. They come right out of Scripture. So they're not traditions because they're man-made. They're traditions because they're intentional protocols to which we conform and thereby become true New Testament churches. They were emphasized by Paul when he planted churches. They are de-emphasized by most others who plant churches or ignored, which is kind of backwards. So we're happy to put icing on the cake, but we want to keep the icing the icing and the cake the cake. The cake consists of these three traditions. And every other kinds of ministries and things we could do as a church that people would say, well, there's nothing wrong with that. Well, okay, there's nothing wrong with it, but just keep it as the icing on the cake. And let's make sure we have the cake. For those of you fasting or you're, you're, you're denying yourself sweets these days, I'm very sorry. Just think of it as an agave-sweetened yeah. vegan cake. <laughs> Which is probably not a very inviting image for most of you. Most of us. I'm better as an artist. Than a, or this kind of artist rather than a culinary artist. So we don't deny the value in, let's say, having a big meeting where someone preaches and teaches. We don't deny the value of this. It's useful. But it doesn't define us. It's done exceptionally, not as the rule. Because the cake is the cake. The cake consists of these three traditions. This is icing. And it's especially good if it's that kind of the um, that cream cheese icing that then seeps in. That this actually has a point that seeps into the cake a little bit, and then it's really good. So this is intended to seep into our foundations and to feed them, but it's also that we can live the disciple life as churches, rather than find ourselves just doing the large assembly, because that gets us all off the hook from these three traditions, or the Jesus way. And we don't want to be off the hook. We'll take the challenge and beg for grace and mercy to live it out. What are the three traditions? The, the first one, Paul says, of first importance, I delivered to you what was also given to me. That's all tradition language. Delivered to me, I get, I've delivered to you what, was, what I received. That, that language is tradition language. It's the gospel. The gospel is the first tradition. That is, the, the gospel is the first uh, protocol taught by Paul. No rhyme intended. Now, why is that called a tradition? Because the gospel consists of certain information that when it's completely understood, we feel the call to enter into full discipleship church mode. 
When the gospel is only sliced up and we cherry pick the parts we like the best, we don't feel that obligation to live a certain kingdom way. Because that's like the extra peripheral stuff. Rather, the gospel, when it's understood fully, the very kingdom announcement and message calls us into a new community. That's not extra. It's not like the gospel just gets us saved and then the church stuff is for the, for the you, know, for, you know, if we're really interested in that or for a specialist or something. It's like, no, the calling to be the church, the calling to live as a new creation is all under the umbrella of one gospel. That's why I started all these meetings with the, with the seven, really eight points of the gospel uh, that the gospel writers give us when they report uh, who Jesus was and what he did and then his death, his resurrection, his ascension. They give us the whole package. And then the apostles expound on that, particularly, like I said, in Romans and Ephesians, which we will look at today. We're going to look at both books, the entire book of Romans and Ephesians in this session before 5.30. We, but we won't look at them in detail, only referring to them. So the first tradition is the full gospel. The gospel, the, the essence of the gospel is that Jesus is king. That's the essence. He specifically became king as only he could by dying and shedding his blood to obliterate the sins of those who believe. That's the way he took dominion over the powers that held sway over humanity. So to have dominion his way, he had to overcome our problems and restore humanity. So it's good to talk about the death of Jesus and the blood of Jesus and justification by faith. But that's only part of the picture. The, the essence is that Jesus rules as king. He wasn't just raised from the dead. He ascended. And that dominion looks like this. So this is all gospel right here. It's not gospel gets you saved and then if you're one of the lucky ones, you can get filled with the Spirit. And then if you're really lucky, you can kind of do church. Have a really good pastor, a really good band or whatever. It's like, no, that's not gospel life. And the reason why we fall short of this, we, we tend to as humans, especially in the West, is not, well, I don't want to, I don't know what it's not. It's because we, we have a compromised view of the gospel itself. We don't understand the full message that constitutes the kingdom. If we had a fuller view of the kingdom gospel, then we would line our lives up with the whole thing. We wouldn't be satisfied with an attendance culture that's centered on certain people or certain beliefs. We would rather um, have a full kingdom family culture, right? So the family idea is not for the weirdos who just want to branch off and be isolated and just hang out and become a cult, although that's happened in the house church movement. We don't, that, that's another extreme. The kingdom keeps everything safe. We do this because it is God's dominion embodied on the earth. That's what we're going for. The first tradition is the full gospel. The second tradition, to take Paul's language, is the Lord's Supper. It is not a sacrament and neither is it merely symbolism. It is a covenant family meal that implies all kinds of things about the family and about the covenant we should be keeping. Getting to that later, the third, uh, the third tradition is to gather in the Holy Spirit and pray and prophesy. All three overlap. Oftentimes the Lord's Supper and the gathering to pray and prophesy happens at the same time. It did in Corinth when all the house churches met together in Gaius' house. 
which is what Paul was instructing about in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 1440. These references are in your notes somewhere. Um, so there were times they would just get together and pray and prophesy, but it was all in the Spirit. And then there were times they got together for the Lord's Supper and the whole thing happened because the Lord's Supper was a revolution because people from different walks of life weren't allowed to eat together. And so for the kingdom to create a people that could gather at the same table, send shockwaves into that city, there's power in it, even if we're in a different culture, as it should in ours also. So we're starting with the gospel as our foundation, the first tradition, which we talked about last time and we will again this time. And I think we're moving on in the next meeting to the Lord's Supper. Um, We'll see. The gospel is Jesus in words. The full gospel is the unveiling of Jesus as the person that he is, announcing the works that he did, and then, if you would, putting him into practical life. The gospel does all the above because the gospel is Jesus in words. That's why John calls him the word. He is the message. When we preach and teach, when we talk about, when we testify to Jesus in terms of the gospel, if it's done in the spirit, Jesus is quite literally present in a special way. As if he were physically standing here. So it's a very, very holy endeavor to preach and teach the gospel. Whether we're dialoguing with one another or there's an assembly and I or someone else is talking. The gospel is Jesus in words. He is the word of life. So John said, look, we testify to him. That which we have seen, that which we've heard, that which our hands have handled concerning the word of life. We were with him. I put my head back on his chest at the Lord's Supper. We saw him minister and live and pray. We know our Jesus. We saw him die. We, we saw him alive from the dead. That which we witnessed, we announced to you so that your fellowship can be with us. Our announcement of the man is the man himself, essentially. That's why the gospel is important to have in its fullness because if you have a full gospel, you have a full Jesus. If you have a partial gospel, you have a partial Jesus. So the gospel is our foundation. It's Jesus in words. It's Jesus in his fullness. And it's Jesus as a way of life, which I, I've already said. So there you have letter C. Roman numeral number two. We're going to now look at the new creation as family. We started looking at this last time. And I'm going to get back to my board here. Sorry. I have no idea what's causing that. I think it's been sabotaged by somebody. Who's okay? Something, something, something's not. Oh boy. Okay. We have a problem. Oh, oh was it coming off here? Well, oh, okay. So, and then, okay. Thanks, Sam. Okay. What was I talking about? Look at Bob Ross. Okay. 
an across, this is an acrostic message. B-O-B. <laughs> no, I know we're, we're at the key passages. You guys, there's a list of passages that talk about the new creation as family. Implied by Jesus there in that Matthew 12 passage. Uh, I give you Matthew 16. There's, just, there's a list there. Some of these are big portions of Scripture, so it's not like this is a call to memorize these. But these are great references, especially to start in this teaching. In, in this next half, I'm going to emphasize the Romans passage. In, in, in a list, it'll be brief. And then that Galatians passage is very important. That's going to be like a key a, a, a key note in the song of this message. Now, there's some poetry right there, so maybe that's my niche here. Um, so that Galatians 5 is a great family passage. Like, look, at, I give you Ephesians 2 through 3. I give you two whole chapters there, and then most of chapter 4. But those are great passages to illustrate that God's dominion becomes family on the earth. So um, we're going to look at the Romans passage by looking at, in a sense, all of Romans... <clears throat> the structure, um, Romans gives us the logic of the gospel according to Paul. <clears throat> and the reason why I call it the logic of the gospel uh, is not because it, it's rooted in human logic, but it's rooted in God's logic. The way that Paul expounds the gospel in Romans follows a progressive line of thought that teaches us the nature of the gospel. There's three main components to the gospel that Paul identifies. And, he, and he, he, um, he explains them in order. And that's important because each point builds on the previous. And then the fourth section of Romans is Paul's exhortation based on his explication of the gospel. You know that verse in Romans 12.1? It says, Therefore... I exhort you in view of the mercies of God. That's where he turns the corner. He's, he said, I just showed you the mercies of God. That's, that's a very interesting way of, of saying the gospel. I just explained the gospel to you, which is essentially just God's mercies rain down on you. Now, in light of that, I exhort you to live a certain way. And he starts by saying, put yourself on the altar. And then guess what he exhorts them to do over the next four chapters? Through chapter 15, 12, 13, 14, 15. Yes, four chapters. He, he exhorts them to live like family who are tolerating and celebrating one another and who are honoring and loving one another because there were divisions between Jews and Gentiles which provoked him to write the entire letter to the Romans. There were conflicts among Christians in Rome because of the Jew-Gentile issues. But there were serious social conflicts. So Paul's response is, oh, you have divisions as family? You lack gospel. It's not that you're just not nice. It's that you don't understand the gospel. So let me give you a, a dose of the gospel. Eleven chapters and then four chapters of exhortation, exhorting them in light of the gospel. Then chapter 16 is the letter closing. I wouldn't put it in with the exhortation, but it has exhortations. That's not as important. Okay, so there's four, there's four components to Paul's gospel in Romans. The first one goes from 116 through, I don't know if I'll be able to give you exact verses, 116 through um, 511. It sounds right. And that is justification by faith. Paul talks about God giving his son 
for sinners whose blood covers our sins when we believe. It's a gift. We could come to God as staunch religious Jews who are self-righteous, as rank Gentile sinners who used to party and do all kinds of crazy things with alcohol and drugs and animals and whatever else. And then he says, you cannot save yourself either extreme. So when you believe God provides his Messiah for you to cover your sins for you as a gift and make you righteous as a gift. That's wonderfully good news. And it's the first part of the gospel that we're justified by faith because God gave his son as a propitiation or as an atonement in his blood to cover the sins of those who believe. Both Jews and Gentiles, all are guilty, all are made right by this gift when they believe. Amen? We all know this. The second part of the gospel is what I taught on last time, and it is to live by faith. We'll just say live by faith, okay. Live by faith, and that's 512 through chapter 8. So I'll just say all of chapter 8. I forget the last verse of chapter 8. So he says here in the first part, look, you're justified by faith. When you believe, you're forgiven and you're made right. But that's not the whole story. You're not just made righteous in good standing and and, and you're forgiven. You're also transformed into a new kind of human. Something very deep and dynamic and transformational has happened when you believe. And guess what, you guys? The Romans to whom Paul was writing did not know this, even though it had happened to them. They were not aware that they were transformed into a new kind of human. So he had to tell them, don't you know that those of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? And then he goes on. This was last week's teaching, so I won't repeat it. But he goes on to say, you were raised to newness of life. You're a new kind of human. Because in this earlier part in chapter 5 here, 12 and following, the Messiah is the new kind of Adam. He's the new head of the human race. So when he died in his old body, you all believers died with him. And when he rose with a new body, you rose with him. That's where your history now begins. That's your Adam now. He's your Adam, not the first Adam. That's good news. So now we're like, oh man, we, we walk in victory. We can put to death the deeds of the body, he says in Romans 8, by the Spirit. You know, the, the, the life, the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he, live, he lives to God. Talking about Jesus. Then Paul says, even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That, that's you now. And for Paul, again, that's not just the Pentecostal add-ons. This is all gospel. This is part two of the gospel. Then part three goes nine through eleven, which we would normally think of as the issue of the Jews and Gentiles, the Israel issue. And it's certainly there. But the real point is that God has created a new community because he created a new humanity, which means he has to have a new family. So these Jews and Gentiles that aren't getting along based on older cultural and religious issues Paul's saying all that has been obliterated by the gospel. You're now a family. So you're not just individually raised from the dead. You're collectively now bound kith and kin. And if you understood this, then you'd 
wouldn't be having these different reactions to one another. Gentiles looking down on Jews who have been replaced. Jews looking down on Gentiles because they're not truly a part of the covenant and they haven't been, you know, circumcised and come in and been, you know, like discipled as Jews and they eat pork and whatever. And it's like, you guys don't even know the Lord. And you just believe in Jesus. And Paul's like, no, th- th- something happened here that's, that's recreated us as a family. So then when you read Romans 9 through 11, you could see that he's, he's, he's explaining the gospel to get to the family issue, not just to teach us about the end times in Israel, though that happens. Because the Gentiles who were looking down on the Jews needed to know, oh, Israel as a nation still has a destiny. They're going to be as a nation messianic one day. That's what he says in chapter 11. In chapters 9 and 10, he's basically telling the Jewish people, you know, God has a harvest among the Gentiles. They, when they believe, they're saved. I didn't call them my people. Now I call them my people. These are, believers. These are Gentiles who are believers. They weren't beloved. Now they're beloved. And, and, and that which was not a nation, I now call or, or, not, or not my people. Those who are not my people are now the sons and daughters of the living God. You Jews have to understand this. These Gentiles, by faith, they are all the way in. They are sons and daughters. And there's a remnant saved among the Jews right now. And he explains about that in chapter 10. Then in chapter 11, he says, Gentiles, believers, historically and spiritually, you owe them a debt, first of all. You don't support the root. The root supports you. And secondly, one day all Israel will be saved. And unless that nation does become messianic, there's not going to be a resurrection at the end of the age. We all have an important role and should honor one another in that role. That's what Paul is saying. The full gospel goes justification by faith, live according to the power of a new creation, and then be the new community in your local expression. Not because it's the nice thing to do, but because that's the gospel of the kingdom. That's why we do what we do. Because it's the way we perceive the gospel. And then Paul, through chapters 12 through 15, gives the exhortation applying all of that. Therefore, I exhort you. And it's the exhortation that's the expression of grace that says the grace God gave you to recreate you, he now uses in an exhortation to encourage you to be the people that he created you to be through the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. See that? That's the family aspect. It's all there. This is where I would ask for questions and comments, but we probably don't have time for that. I have to move to the next point. Um, But are we at least clear? And you have to say yes. Okay. So back to the grace formula from last week, but now moving it into a new place. We're looking at those couple of verses in Galatians. The grace formula is that the new creation plus apostolic exhortation equals joyful obedience. God recreates us. We can't do that ourselves. Then we find out where we created and It's apostolic teaching that does that right there in the Bible. And then it also says, now, come on, you can do this. You're not the person you used to be. You're not a victim. 
you are a son or daughter of God, you can obey. It's, it's, it's something that God has done inside of you to make you capable. But isn't it interesting that God does that and yet we could not know about it? That's how important preaching and teaching the gospel is in community and talk and exhortation and all that. And then, then the Spirit shows up. Well, why don't you just show up? And sometimes He does in unusual circumstances and just teaches people. You know, we've heard of that. I've heard a story of Jesus leading a whole village to the Lord. <laughs> Jesus led a whole village to Himself. That was the testimony told to me by, by, by my friend Derek. There was some unreached, un, unreached group in, uh, in, I think, the mountains of Nepal. I forget if that's the exact nation. Anyway, on, according to their records, it was unreached people, and they went to them and, and, and began to minister. They were going to show the Jesus film, and they said, you know, they, they found out that this whole village is born again and filled with the Spirit, and the elders of the village are now the elders of the church. And they're like, who told you? And they kept pointing at the, the man on the, the cover of the, the video, the Jesus man. Jesus. That was their claim. This man lived among them for three months, and it was Jesus. Now that, okay, now if that's true, and I believe it is, that's highly unusual. That's very, very unusual. And probably not the greatest, you know, commentary on the church doing its outreach job. It's like, I'll do it myself kind of thing with these people. Or they're very, very special people in that particular set of villages or whatever. The point is, it's, it's, it's amazing how we can actually have this, uh, this awesome deposit of gospel glory. And if we don't realize it and don't relate to it, we won't experience it. And yet, if we do, it's, it's like digging and finding a spring underneath the ground that just gushes up. It, it's, not, it's not psychological therapy merely. It's when you tap in, the power is there. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Which brings me to Galatians 5. So the new creation plus exhortation equals joyful obedience. And in particular, we're going to look at this passage of Scripture, Galatians 5, verses 13 and following, as, as the key concept for today that we're taking away. And to get to the heart and soul of the community issue as a new creation, right? So, so in verse 13, you were called to freedom, brethren. Uh, that, you weren't called to freedom, brethren, like that's a team. You were called to freedom, comma, brothers and sisters. So freedom in the context of Galatians, of course, is a complete liberation from sin and from the shackles of religion. It's another way of stating the new creation, which is clear in context. So this is the work of God as a gift of grace, our freedom. You were called to freedom. Only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Get ready, Sam. I might need you again. No. Good job, Sam. Look at that. No, I'm saying I don't, I don't have a problem here. Good job. Okay. So these two companion concepts are key to us. That's, that's probably not dark enough. Okay. Love and service. I just don't like that. 
That's not good. I'm going to go back with the black marker. And I'm going to write it a little lower because I'm going to do more artwork here in a second. Through love, serve one another. That is the heart and soul of real community. Love and service. Bottom line. It's why we were liberated. And the word he uses there for serve is one, it's, it's a more graphic word of being owned by someone else. And he does not suggest we give ourselves to be owned by other people. But he uses that powerful and vivid of a word. So we have the mentality, I'm here for them, not vice versa. Right? Love drives us to serve people like we are their servants. And that's what makes community. It's not meeting in a home. It's love and service. And if we don't capture these concepts in our hearts as convictions and then actions, we don't understand the gospel. Because the very way of our king, as we'll continue to see, is he takes his throne by having gone very low. And that's exactly what he taught his people. If you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. But if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. That's the way of the king. He came down, God lifted him up. He laid down his life, God raised him up from the dead. That's the pattern. Our job is not to raise ourselves up. Our job is to lower ourselves. And when we lower ourselves, God raises us up. So all the pressure is off to have to give ourselves promotion, recognition, and praise. God takes care of all that when we lower ourselves. And that doesn't mean demean ourselves, because God's the one who calls us his sons and daughters. And he's the one that says, you, uh, gives us grace. What, what am I looking for? We're his sons and daughters. He, he stoops down and makes us great. But that's the nature of the kingdom. The great ones are the servants. We're liberated so that we can bind ourselves to serve others. That's the whole nature of the kingdom. It, it's, it's what dominion does. It goes low and it serves. And then God raises the servants up. It is the pattern of the kingdom. If we don't catch this, there's no church, there's no nothing. We have to constitute church all the other ways, according to human traditions, that are essentially avoiding this. Now, they'll talk about it and they'll do it to a degree. Oftentimes, when we're left to our traditions, we'll, we'll, we'll do this to a degree, but we'll build mechanisms where you can still avoid this and have church. That's the problem. It's a deception. This will still happen anywhere you have God, people, and spirit. But it's limited because we'll build things that will attract people where you don't have to love and serve. And you still get the feeling that you're in, whereas this is missing. To me, this is all I want and let everything else be the icing. This, this is the gospel exhortation. Uh, through love, serve one another. That's what kings and queens do with their freedom and their majesty. They say, wow, God stacked me down with great glory and gifts. I think I'll lower myself to give all that to other people. Just like our king did, who had more gifts and more majesty than anyone else. What did he do with his greatness? He laid his life down so that others can benefit by his greatness, rather than he would receive mere praise for his greatness, which we still give him. That's why we're given greatness, so we can serve others. You guys are so great. And here's why. This, this simple moment, through love, serve one another. That simple moment in Paul's written speech here is the climactic moment 
of the gospel itself. Through love, serve one another. It is the greatest expression of holy spirituality. It is the most nutritious fruit, love that serves. It is the clearest sign of spiritual maturity. Love that serves. This is an iceberg. Here is the water. Again, I should have had the blue. The house church or the small group, I mean, let's just call it a group. It's just a social word for the little units that are families. That's the tip of the iceberg. The mass is underneath the water and it's just full of love for people and a willingness and in fact a compulsion in the spirit to serve people. That's the spirit of any community. If we're... See, if I'm blocking the mass, the larger part of the iceberg that's under the water, and just trying to get the thing on the top, misses the whole point. We are not reducing what we do to a model. That's just one model. One model, the family model of church is one model among many. That's like saying the family model of family is one model. I like doing the company model for a family. You got a CEO and then a vice president or something and you teach the kids chores and budget but you never meet you never connect you never teach you dole that out to other people as long as the budget and the house gets done well well you know you should go try you know with the, the 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 joneses and they have family as family you should go check them out well that's a good model for them we do family as a company that's our model and they do family as, as family. But it's good for them. I, I'm good with that. It's, 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 not, it's not like it's a model. It's just family. And then anything else that happens, happens around the core of the actual family love and service and connections and everything else. Here you have, this is kingdom here. This is kingdom. This is discipleship. Disc is for discipleship. This is the mass that when it breaches the surface, you got these groups. But this is what the groups are built on. It's the spirit of love and service. Discipleship. The dominion of God wrapped up with people like a robe. If we're just trying to get the the group thing, it's just floating around on the surface. It's just completely superficial. It's just a method. It's just a model. The last thing I want to do, I'd rather meet in some gigantic liturgical cathedral and hope there's a few meek worshipers there than try to get the house group as a model without the mass underneath it of kingdom life and the spirit of God and people who love one another and serve one another out of that love. What is biblical love? Biblical love that Paul's referring to here. Oh my goodness. Jesus commanded us to love one another. That is the new commandment. It's the one he identified that said, if you abide in my commandments, or if you obey my commandments, you abide in me. So this is like the heart and the soul of, of the kingdom gospel and the life to which we're called. is love. <laughs> love is the affectionate esteem of others above ourselves. That inspires us to make sacrifices in order to enhance 
the other people's lives in God. It's the affectionate esteem of others above ourselves that inspires us to make sacrifices so that their lives are better in Jesus Christ. It's the same pattern as God Himself in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Now, obviously, the way God did that in Christ is something only He could do in terms of atonement. But the pattern is for all of us. Love gives sacrificially in order to give life that's genuine to the object of love. Life is always the product of love. So, so my serving you, you're serving one another, us serving one another, whatever it is, the, the object is always to enhance true spiritual life in that other person. Whether it's an immediate need, and it's frankly very, you know, maybe something very material oriented, a, a meal or something, or it's sharing a word of wisdom during a meeting that, for all you know, is going to save someone's life sitting on the other side of the room. I've had, maybe not really saved my life, but I felt like I've had that happen in some of our meetings. I leave thinking, what would I do if I weren't in that meeting where those three, four words were given? And they have no idea the depth to which it touched me, even though I testified to a degree. That's love when we meet together and share the Spirit. Because the point is not to show off the gifts, like the Corinthians were doing. The, 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 The point is to say, look... Here's a piece, in a sense, forgive me for saying it this way, but it's like here's a piece of the Lord for your life that God wanted me to give you. It's not something he was going to give to you in prayer by yourself, which is where we get plenty. Don't get me wrong. And that's the first commandment is to love God. But some things we can only get from one another when we're serving one another in love. And the goal is always to enhance the life of the other person in Christ. And like I said, it could be a very simple thing. That's, that's physical, or it can be something more magnificent like tremendous travail through the night or sharing a revelation. An insight, something that, you know, I mean, some people carry things for years and then the right prophecy comes. The whole thing's broken apart. Encouragement and life and hope and a whole new dance replaces a complete dirge through one prophetic word. That's why Paul put the, the love chapter in chapter 13 and then the prophecy chapter in chapter 14. That was 1 Corinthians 13 occurs in the middle of a meeting. It's the Lord's Supper and the body and the gifts on the left, and it's the prophecy on the right. It's all one setting. The way we gather is an expression of love. If we don't gather in a way that does the 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, then it's a lack of love. It's not just we're not doing what the Bible says. It's, it's we're not maximizing love for one another. It's so rich when people who love one another come and they share the Spirit, they share food, they share service or whatever. I mean, life gets multiplied in every heart. So love always, it it esteems people out of affection and that that affection and, and esteem inspires us to make sacrifices to make the other person's life better in Christ. Number two, very quickly, love refers to the intentional development of community. Love means the cultivation of family. There's no such thing as love without family. When it says God is love, it's because He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If He couldn't love another from eternity, then He would not be God. 
And he certainly wouldn't be love. Well, I believe in a God who is alone and he can't have a son. Well, then he can't love. Yes, he does love. He loves what he creates. Well, that means he depends on his creation, which means he can't be God. But our God existed in three from forever, which means he was always love. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we need family to express love. So when Jesus says love one another, he doesn't mean try not to get too ticked off and go a little long on the handshaking after the offering where the pastor actually has to stop you because of all the fellowship. He's saying develop as a family because that will bring you into realms that will test your souls and, and help develop you in ways that other things can't. Number three, love refers to Uh, this comes right after number two. It's very related, but it refers to our having a a tribal kind of identity. When when God plunges us into a certain people group, we uh, a certain not a not a um, a local expression of church. When God plunges us in, they become my people. Those are my people. That's our confession. Just like God says when he talks about Israel or now in the New Covenant, he says, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's not just technical. They happen to be my people. He's saying that from his heart. Hear the dimensions in his heart when he says that. Those are my people. Those are my people. I remember Hope said that once about her siblings, right? She, she, we were talking about going to do something and she said, kind of, I don't know if it was off the cuff or just in her flow of thinking, but she said, no, I want to be with my people. And she met her siblings. Because <laughs> that's the way she sees them. Those are my people. Those are my people. And I'm like, yes, that's very insightful. I want to be able to look at my spiritual family with whom I've been, or into whom I've been immersed in the local expression and say, that's my people. Those are my people. More than any other people that I might be connected to. Those are my people. That's what, that's what love is and does. It connects with people and says, that's my people. That's my people. Just the way God says it. I find that very practical and very inspiring because this love that says, these are my people, that will then just serve them. Well, they're my people, so I'm here to serve them. Service refers to the concrete acts of sacrifice to enhance the lives of others, as we've already said. So I am going to close here now. You have Jesus, the servant king. Pretty important point. That's a triple P situation. No, that's a P-I-P. Pretty important point. But you hear the alliteration. In any case, I have to skip that because I'm out of time. So I'm going to go to the assignments. Um, I'll go back to the other passages next time if it fits. Um, Here's some practical things we can do as last time. Let's memorize some of these scriptures about love and service. No one's grading you. There's no journal or notebook, so don't feel overwhelmed. You could just memorize as little or as much as you want. No one's checking up on you. And the second thing I'm suggesting here is that we frame our minds around these concepts of love and service. That we frame our minds around them. A couple of practical things of what I mean by that... I want it to be a mindset, love and service. 
For one, I would, I would encourage us to feast on God's love for us and for His people. It is one of Paul's prayers that we prayed at the beginning in Ephesians 1. That our hearts would be open to the reality of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. So we want to be spiritually aware of the way God cherishes His people. And then we need to feel that ourselves. It's not all the feels, but it involves feelings in a sense, conviction. God's esteem for His people. We want in us, so we have it in us. Yeah, and then, I already said that. God's feelings toward His precious children. And then I also would encourage you, and this is in light of the passage, one of the passages I didn't look at, John 13, when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, it says he knew where he came from and he knew where he was going. The more secure he was in his identity and his destiny, the more free he was to serve others. And it's the same for us. Really let the Lord minister to you as to your identity, God's love for you, his cherishing of you, and your destiny, because it then liberates you to not need to be served, but rather to serve others. To activate these things, I give you a few quick points. First of all, I really, really highly encourage all of us in the clarity and power of the Spirit to forgive all those against whom we still harbor some kind of bitterness or resentment. Our hearts, oddly enough, in their fallen or then weakened states as they're still being built up, we tend in that direction, whereas in fact our hearts weren't even created to harbor those feelings, but rather to love and forgive. And so that now that we're recreated, we can do it. Now, some of you may be wrestling to forgive things that are very deep, very uh, primitive in your history, and they, they touch your identity in a way where it makes it easy for me to talk. Well, don't get mad at me and make it worse. I say, I understand what you're saying, but let's open up our hearts and ask the Lord to help us to forgive by His grace completely and absolutely and thoroughly and then not recount it and bring it back. Let's, let's start there. Let's really deeply forgive and reconcile where it's truly possible and required. Sometimes the other person's not willing or time has erased it and the other person's not available or whatever it is, I understand that there's some things that the other person makes it impossible. Then, as far as it depends on you and me, we're at peace with all people. We do all we can where we can't control the other person. We never want to anyway, but where they're not willing, you understand what I'm saying. So where possible, reconcile. In all cases, forgive absolutely. There's the title of that one book that I don't even, I didn't even read all of it, but I love the title and what it means for this this message. Keep your love on. Have you ever heard of that book? Keep your love on. It's like you, we, we have to be intentional in every situation and with every person to remember who we are. Love. That is, in a sense, our mandate is to love as God loves. So let's just keep that on all the time. And then, as we've already discussed, actually, and we'll, we'll continue to teach in the next sessions, we're going to keep the other traditions as churches, which is the Lord's Supper and the gathering in the Spirit, because those are not just technical ways of meeting. 
They're the ways that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians on how we should love one another through the Spirit. That's why we do those things, because they're expressions of love. Not because we're nitpicky about the Bible and we should eat, not just have a ceremony. It's like, no, we, we want to maximize love. Let's practice these things. They're not easy. They're challenging. They could be very inconvenient. They require hosting. And it's, it's like, well, if we do it together and we're signed up for love, then we can do it. So let's keep our love on and let's do these other traditions of the Lord's Supper and meeting in the Spirit because that's the way we love one another.